It's Philosophy Talk. Sal's kind of faith is a gift. It's like a, an ear for music or the talent to draw. He believes and you can use logic on him all day long and he still believes. Must everything be logical? Faith asks us to put our trust in things greater than ourselves. So isn't it just a form of humility? Isn't faith a form of intellectual arrogance because it requires us to reject evidence, science, and reason? Why are the faithless so dogmatic and arrogant that they claim to know better than God himself? Because I gotta have faith. If all your faith is wrong, Sal, I mean, just what if, huh? If, hmm? then I'll still have a better life than all of those that doubt. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that you prefer God to the truth? If necessary, I will always choose God over truth. Faith and humility. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Josh Lampy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thanks for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Does faith require humility before God? Isn't a blind, dogmatic faith a kind of arrogance? Or is it atheists who reject faith and deny God who are really the arrogant ones? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Deborah Satz, and we're here at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Deborah and I teach philosophy. Today we probe the relationship between faith and humility. This is another episode in our ongoing series on intellectual humility. Do you know, Deborah, some people, especially non-believers, think that there's an inherent conflict between faith and humility? But, you know, I don't think that's right. I mean, faith sees itself as a form of humility. Humility before God. Well, that's what the faithful like to tell themselves. But you know what? They can be stubbornly dogmatic, and dogmatism is not humility. Yeah, but it, the faithful will say back to that, that it's those who reject faith and put themselves above God who are really the prideful, arrogant ones, and they see that as a sin. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. It's believers who claim a direct pipeline to God. What can be more arrogant than that? And you know where such arrogance has led in history, to the Crusades, to Inquisitions, to jihads? Well, look, 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 I'm not going to defend all aspects of religion like all things human. Religion has its dark side. I can grant you that. Amen to that. Well, but still, <laughs> let's not be so quick to dismiss faith entirely, Deborah. At least not genuine faith. Well, how exactly do you propose to distinguish genuine faith from, what, fake faith? Yeah, I think some faith... Is fake. I mean, think Kierkegaard. He says that genuine faith, and I think he's right, is not the kind of thing you get by, you know, going to church on Sunday, mouthing a few prayers, nodding in agreement with the stern sermon. You don't really have faith, the real thing, until you can complete a journey like that of Abraham. That's a really high standard, Ken. <laughs> well, that's true. God <laughs> promises Abraham and his wife Sarah a son when they're, you know, like a hundred years old in their dotage. And it's a miracle. He gives them a son, but 
then what does he go and do? <laughs> he turns around and he commands Abraham, I mean, this takes the cake, to take his son up the mountain and sacrifice. That is, kill him. Yeah. It's, so so what's the point here? Uh, you have to be willing to kill your child in order to have faith? No, it's not about that. I mean, and, and after all, the angel saves Isaac, and so he, Abraham doesn't have to kill Isaac. But it, the point is about... Abraham's journey. That's what Kierkegaard wants you to focus on. I mean, think of what that journey must have been like. I mean, try to put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Uh, you Think of the pain, the anguish, the doubt and hesitation, the fear and trembling, as, as Kierkegaard calls it, that, that you'd have to go through. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be Abraham. That's precisely Kierkegaard's point. Despite the fact that we can't imagine it, that it would be awful, Abraham obeys. He straightway obeys. And that's what genuine faith is. And that's not the synthetic process faith substitute that most believers have. And it's, and it's not at all arrogant. Deborah, it's a torturous willingness to submit to the unfathomable will of God. It's amazing. That's very poetic sounding, Ken. But not only doesn't it not help with our original problem, it actually makes things worse. Oh, come on, how? Well, supposing you come across someone today dragging his poor son up a mountain, and he tells you that his plan is to follow Abraham. (laughs) Wouldn't you try to stop him? You bet I would. And if he says... Move aside, Ken. I do as God commands. Would you just accept it? No, no way. I'd treat him like a murderous lunatic, I think. Well, my point is a faith like Abraham's, however moving, can also be disastrous for other people and for their rights. Oh, oh, okay, okay. So look, look. Uh, You got me here. I mean, uh, because you're saying the Crusades are just lurking around the corner. So maybe the answer is a faith that's not so dogmatic. I mean, uh, and, and, you know, once faith uh, is humble, not simply before God, but also before the rest of us, once faith listens to every voice rising from God's creation, then maybe reason wouldn't feel a need to be hostile so, to faith. So so here's my advice to the faithful. Forget Abraham and his invincible uh, faith. Be like the Unitarian Universalist or something. So now you want a kumbaya movement? You want a faith that's wishy-washy? Well, thanks to you, you win. You convince me that maybe that's the only possible way for the faithful and the faithless to humbly coexist. You win, Deborah. Well, I, I like winning, uh, <laughs> But try telling this to those of genuine faith that you began talking about. Well, why, why do you want to bring them back into this? Because to them, that your solution leads to things like cafeteria-style Catholicism, where you just pick and choose which doctrines of the church to accept based on your own preferences or the fads of the moment. And then we're back to faith in name only. Oh, gosh, you're whipshawing me, Deborah. This is really hard stuff. Look, I don't think you and I are going to settle this year, but maybe a roving philosophical reporter, Liza Veal, can help. We sent her out to talk to someone who's lived on both sides of the faith divide. She files this report. When author and atheist leader Chris Stedman fell out of faith, he was a teenager trying to make sense of how cruel human history has been. He found little reassurance in Christian ideas. I just couldn't believe that the only people who had sort of figured this out and gotten this right were Christians. Stedman became a sort of agnostic non-believer, a secular humanist. Today, he works to build the kind of spiritual community among secular people that he found so nourishing in faith spaces. As an atheist, he's a public figure, appearing on programs like The Bill O'Reilly Show. 
You know, I want to hear from atheists. What do we believe in? What do we stand for? What are our highest values? Rather, right, than, rather than alienating 82% you know, of the population, which sees you guys as cheap-shotting them. But when he took on this role and subjected himself to an audience, he learned something about atheists. Some of them were as controlling and intolerant as the most doctrinaire Christians he'd encountered. Over the internet, they criticized his message, they felt he was soft on religion, and they harassed him about personal things. After his appearance on O'Reilly, he says, The majority of the negative feedback that I got, both from Fox viewers and even from some atheists, was either overtly sort of homophobic or had um, homophobic undertones. The experience drove him to take a step back. And Stedman's not alone in drawing the ire of online atheists. It turns out that the Atheism subreddit, an open forum on the website Reddit, is ranked the third most bigoted and toxic of all the website's forums, behind one that's dedicated to sexual strategy and another about a racist radio show. Someone created the Ten Commandments of the Atheism subreddit, and they don't scream humility. Thou shalt remember thy sense of superiority and keep it holy. Thou shalt be relentlessly offended and confused by the very concept of religion. Thou shalt conflate religion and extremism because it's less complicated that way. Thou shalt spread the joyous gospel of old creepy Christians getting caught with child porn and other fun stuff. And it goes on. In this light, it can be easier to see what religious people mean when they insist faith is the ultimate act of humility. Peter Wenner is a Christian and an opinion contributor for the New York Times. He writes, quote, at the core of Christian doctrine is the belief that we have fallen short, that our loves are disordered and our lives sometimes a mess, and therefore we are in need of grace. The mark of genuine humility is not self-abasement as much as self-forgetting, which in turn allows us to take an intense interest in the lives of others. Comparing that to this... His eminence is claiming to know more than a primate can possibly know, and he's showing that he knows much less than most primates probably should. For me, it recasts Chris Stedman's story of deconversion. So then when you were challenging your religiousness and kind of coming to this identity, was that a humility or was that the opposite? Um, it was probably some of both. I mean, certainty is seductive. I think that there was a part of me when I was younger and going through a lot of um, big transitions and challenges in life around my family and my sexual orientation. His parents were getting divorced, and he was realizing he wasn't straight. I wanted some feeling of security in that, and I found that in these very sort of rigid answers that I got in an evangelical Christian space. Stedman's evangelical ties didn't last too long, in large part because of his sexuality. But counterintuitively, maybe, it was a religious institution that helped him come out as queer. He found an LGBT community in a Lutheran church. Those progressive Christian churches um, were kind of the place where I could go to find sort of radical acceptance. And in grad school, when he came to terms with his non-belief, it was his Lutheran professors that supported him. And actually really sort of pushed me to, you know, what they wanted was for me to have an honest reckoning with what I believed and to pursue my questions, my doubts, my inquiries. All of this is just to say that humility and openness and their opposites, they abound in religious and secular spaces alike. For Stedman, his circumstances of fear and insecurity, they made him defensive about disagreement. I sort of felt like I needed to 
really prove to someone why my beliefs were right, and in order to do that, I needed to prove why their beliefs were wrong. As he's emerged from that insecurity, it's made it possible to disagree without being disagreeable. So counterintuitively, humility was made possible by a kind of assurance. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Veal. Thanks uh, for that whip-shawing journey through doubt and arrogance to humility, Liza. I'm Ken Taylor. With me is my Stanford colleague, Deborah Satz. And today, we're thinking about faith and humility. We're joined now by Joshua Hook. He's professor of psychology at the University of North Texas and co-author of Cultural Humility, Engaging Diverse Identities in Therapy. Joshua, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, Joshua, what first got you interested in this kind of question about faith and humility? Your very own crisis of faith, a journey like that of our uh, subject on the Roving Report, or what? Yeah, you know, you know, for me, this my interest in this area is is both professional and personal. I grew up in an evangelical Christian home and went to evangelical Christian churches uh, my entire upbringing and throughout college. And when I went to graduate school um, in psychology. Uh, I started to develop, uh, you know, values that were that some of were counter to the ones I had grown up with. And uh, earlier, I was very certain about what I what I believed was true and right. And then I kind of had this period of time where I was struggling in navigating these two identities. And sometimes I felt like I had to either ditch the psychologist identity or ditch the Christian identity. And pursuing integration really required humility and rethinking of some of my earlier convictions that I'd been taught. So, Josh, I mean, both from your own experience and listening to the roving report, it seems that both believers and non-believers have a tendency to regard themselves as humble and to dismiss the other as arrogant. So what's going on here? Can they both be right? Well, I, th- I think we, we do have an inherent desire to be sure that what we believe is true. And, uh, you know, if we thought something different was true, we would change our mind and do something else or believe something else. So I think humility uh, is, has less to do with the specific content of whether you believe in God or not, but more to do with how you hold those beliefs, uh, whether you're aware of and own the limitations of your own particular perspective. So wait a minute, wait a minute then. Wait, yeah. So how can both the, you know, the atheist apostle of reason and the, uh, the believing apostle of faith, how can they both claim humility then? Because these are conflicting ways of holding belief, and it seems like one undermines the other and the other undermines, so how can they both claim humility? Well, yeah, I mean, I think at some broad level we can say that, you know, you know, probably there is a God or there isn't a God, but we all come to the table with a certain lens with which we see the world that's based on our uh, family or cultural or religious upbringing, and we don't have the corner of the truth. We all see uh, see through a lens, and we all we all have limitations in our own perspective. So I think being in tune with that, uh, you can do that as both an atheist and a religious believer. But does that mean you have to be skeptical? I mean, what if you think there's some things that are just true? Yeah. So I, I th- and that's a really tough question, and something that we I don't think we've we've figured out as a field, and that that uneasy relationship with strong convictions and humility. 
Um, and I, th I think it's possible to have both. I think you believe what you believe. You're also open to new information and discrepant information if it comes your way. Uh, and you're also respectful and open to engaging with other people who so, believe differently. Okay, so this we'll need to probe this much more uh -huh. deeply. I mean, yeah. this is the central question, I think, of whether humility requires, like, skepticism. But you'll, we'll, we'll get back to this. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about the relationship between faith and humility with Joshua Hook from the University of North Texas. Can there be understanding between believers and non-believers? Can we engage with each other with shared attitudes of humility and mutual respect, or are we doomed only to angry recriminations and an inevitable parting of the ways? Toward fruitful encounters between the faithful and the faithless. Plus, your calls and emails, whether humble or arrogant, when Philosophy Talk continues. And ask Speedo asking the Lord to hear him. Intellectual humility or the height of arrogance? I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Deborah Satz, and we're probing the relationship between faith and humility. Our guest is Joshua Hook from the University of North Texas, the co-author of Cultural Humility. So, Joshua, I'm convinced that I can think of at least one way for believers and non-believers to communicate e with each other better and to accept each other better. But the way I think of it, the burden's on religion. Religion has to become less dogmatic, more all-embracing, kind of like the Unitarian Universalists or even the Buddhists. Now, but is that the only way, or am I demanding too much of religion? Well, I mean, I mean, I definitely think religion could do a better job of being open to differences and more loving and more accepting. But I, I think what you suggest, like everyone becoming Universalists, probably uh, on one hand isn't necessarily, isn't really practical. And also, I, I do think you lose something when you try to flatten out differences. Uh, there's something beautiful about diversity of religious perspectives and beliefs. And I think if you if you try to do away with that, um, you lose something important. Uh, you know, it, d engaging with differences is messy. It's uncomfortable. But I think that's something we have to do if we're going to move forward in this discussion. So I, I you know, applaud the, um, the celebration of the diversity of perspectives and your desire not to flatten out things. But aren't some views, whether religious or atheistic, incompatible with humility? Yeah, you know, there are, there are certain things about uh, specific religious perspectives that make humility dif difficult. I'll, get, I'll just give you one example. When I was growing up, we thought about the idea of faith as being certain that what you believed was true. Kind of this idea, like, if you have enough faith, you can pray and you can move this mountain and it'll, it'll go to a different place or things like that. And I do think a faith that doesn't embrace questioning and doubt and things like that makes it difficult to be humble. Um, there's some other reasons too, I think, why why faith can be uh, humility can be difficult in regard to faith, but uh, but that's just one of them. So, but but see, but that goes to a fundamental. Th I don't know if Abraham is the right example, but it's take it take Abraham is taken by Judaism and Christianity. I don't know how uh, the Islam believe as the exemplar of faith. Many interpretations of the of the Abraham journey, many different ones. But Kierkegaard's is really bracing. Just because it seems to entail that Abraham had to surrender his will to God and then could not explain that surrender to, 
to anybody else. This is the teleological suspension of the ethical and all that stuff. But you cannot explain that surrender to reason. Indeed, you have to quiet reason. And if, if faith is like that, uh, that's deeply problematic. It can coexist. It cannot. Is I mean... Okay, so do you think that is the right understanding of Christian faith, or is it, or is that just something deeply wrong about that understanding of what Abraham, as the exemplar of faith, is supposed to show? Well, I think when you use that that example, it's a little bit difficult, and I think this comes up in in daily life too. So I think it's important to talk about well, this idea for many religious folks, humility is. Uh, kind of s- maybe subjecting our will to the will of God, right? Um, but but really, how that plays out a little bit is is it's almost like subjecting my will to to what I think the will of God is, or what my denomination thinks the will of God is. And there's there's a lot of differences there. So uh, I think we run into trouble where we think we've we've figured out our theology and we know exactly what God is. I think there has to be a little bit of uncertainty there. So I want to push back a little bit, as I uh, said earlier, about the kind of skepticism that this leads uh, would lead you to embrace. I mean, there's a quote of Abraham Lincoln's I've ever, always loved, which is, if slavery isn't wrong, nothing is wrong. And that, I think, suggests he's not going to change his mind about slavery. He's not open to changing his mind about slavery. It's just the raw, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. And... I think there's something right in that attitude. So if you, you know, is that attitude compatible with humility? And do you have to be a skeptic to be humble? Well, I I think it depends how you define humility. If you define humility as being open to differences and and change, you you might say a statement like that isn't necessarily humble. But I, I think that you know, humility is is one particular virtue. I don't know that it's always the virtue that's called right. for in every mm-hmm. situation. So with yeah, the good. Abraham Lincoln, yeah. you know, maybe a, a virtue of courage or or something like that might be the better virtue. To, well, I want to give Abraham. I want to give Abraham Lincoln, not Abraham of the Bible, but <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, his due as humble. I I do I get I grant Deborah's point, right? That there's no ounce of skepticism here. But I don't I don't think that. Abraham Lincoln did not have a preparedness to argue the point mm-hmm. with all comers, right? So you're going to give me an argument from divine revelation or something in support of slavery. I'm going to argue back, and I'm going to argue back from principles about the equality of humans and all that sort of stuff. And so I'm prepared. Come on, bring it on, right? That's not inconsistent with humility, is it? I mean, humility would be that if there was no possibility, I could not even conceive of the possibility of a trumping argument. Yeah, I can conceive of the possibility, but you got to bring it on, and I'm going to st- here. I stand. What What about that? As a as a Deborah doesn't like that. Yeah, I, I don't think that is the attitude that's being expressed here. It's like, you know, I'm waiting for the better argument. Give me a better argument. I think it's really like, you know, it's so fundamental to the way I see the world that I can't imagine abandoning this thesis. Yeah, you can't it imagine throw... it, but, but I can be imagining you trying and uh-huh. failing. I'm not open. You try. You right? try. Well, right. I could still be respectful to you even if I hold this view. So I, what I'm trying to say is not, do not, you know, not being skeptical about some things is compatible with being respectful to other people who s- disagree with you, even if you're sure. But that means not being respectful. Is that humility or not humility? Well, that's the question. So what right? demand well, I, do you I think, think this place is under religious, uh, Joshua? I mean, if, if the Abraham Lincoln view, that seems a little Abrahamic to me, <laughs> right? Here I stand. No, You can not shake me. That seems a little bit like Abraham, right? And 
Is that okay? I mean, well, one time uh, uh, Deborah said that leads to the Crusades. Now she's saying that's rational. What do you think? Well, I think there's probably two aspects of humility that we're talking about and maybe conflating. One is an individual or an intrapersonal aspect of humility, which I think involves awareness of limitations and openness to different perspectives. But I also think there's a relational piece to humility that involves mm-hmm. being respectful of another, <coughs> another person's point of view and being able to be in relationship even with someone who has a different uh, opinion on something. So, th- But that, but let's follow up on Deborah though, because I'm gonna press you from her point of view again. Because that, that means though, well, okay, humility, schmility, I am not gonna be in relation with these Southern slave owners. There is just going to be a parting of the ways and a clashing of, of blows. Sometimes the course away from humility, but again, I worry, how do we judge that, right? Because on the one hand, it could lead to the abolitionist movement, which I applaud. On the other hand, it could lead to the crusades, which I don't applaud. So how do you manage that thing? It is a difficult thing, and I feel like we're dealing with that with our society today. We're not really trying to understand, like politically, for example, we're not really trying to understand the other other side or the other perspective, but we're just trying to win. And then we celebrate for a little bit, and then the other side wins, and then we're, we're frustrated. So I, I do think we need to move forward in a different way. Um, so and, I'm curious whether psychology uh, has any insights Because you're a psychologist, here, right? Because you're a psychologist. We're, you know, just philosophers spinning out, you know, our theories. But I'm, I'm interested in, you know, what you know from psychology about the attitude of humility and of respect for others. Yeah. So it, a little bit like I was saying before, we define humility using two parts, that in individual part, which being means being aware and open of limitations, and then an interpersonal piece, uh, which involves being respectful and, and open to relationship. And we, we do find a lot of benefits to humility in regard to engaging with people who are different and developing positive relationships with people who are different. Um, there are some negatives, though, too, especially when we talk about religious humility. Uh, you know, there is something that feels good and provides you provides many people with meaning and a certain sense of well-being to be sure that what they believe is true. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag in terms of so, psychologically. So could you, do the two parts have to go, the two aspects of humility have to go together? So couldn't I not be open but still engage with people on a, you know, um, on grounds of respect? Like, I think you're wrong, but I'm going to respect you as a free and equal member of my society. Yeah, for sure. I think you. I think you can. You can. You can be sure of what you believe, and then also engage with other people in a positive way. But you can be. But uh, I'm going to ask you another question that you know philosophers don't know the answer to. I don't know if psychologists do. Are people naturally disposed? I mean, do you just find sort of people's natural dispositions, as it were, or even their enculturated dispositions, right? Do we find them practicing humility? Do we find them practicing one aspect of this more than the other? I mean, is there is it easy to do both? of these things or, or, or what for people? You know, I, honestly, I don't think it's easy. And that's, and that's part of the reason why this is a difficult topic. I think our natural tendency as human beings is to think that we are right and that we've got it down. And we tend also to surround ourselves with people who are like-minded. And there's a little bit of a consensual validation that happens. Uh, if, if all these people believe the same thing as me, I'm more certain that I'm right. So I, I think that's our, our maybe more 
MO, and, and we have to counteract that if we want to be humble and engage with people who are different. Right. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking, we're probing the relationship between faith and humility, and we'd love to know what you think, whether you're humble or arrogant. We welcome both. And Bill from San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk. Bill, what's your comment or question? Well, um, I was told by uh, someone who knew my father, uh, who was the son of a Reb, um, that he was having an argument with uh, some some gentleman, and his final remark was, "You think your wisdom's in your beard?" And I think that um, there's 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 got to be the spirituality along with the beliefs. Um, I believe that some parts of scriptures. And one of the few pieces that I know is uh, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. And there are some parts that are more important than others. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I mean, you know, that, that some people want to see other people killed because of their sexuality. They don't say, oh, gee, how do, they pract- how, do they, how do they deal with their neighbor? How do they deal with their loved ones? How do, you know, so, so clearly, you know, for me, you know, to believe, for, for, for people to believe that they know everything is arrogant. Yeah, Bill, thanks for the, thanks for the comment. I, I take your point. But there's two sides of this coin, uh, Joshua, and I just, I'm not sure about religion. And it's, I, I think religions divide about this to a certain degree. There is, there is the Bill point, you know. And I think Bill was making a deep point. There is God reveals himself in all kinds of ways through the suffering of the lowliest human being. And, and there are strands of Catholicism that says revelation comes from every corner of, of, of the creation. And then there are others who think, well, revelation comes through the sacred scriptures and the sacred scriptures lay it down. And they don't brook any disagreement because they think, well, that leads to a kind of Catholicism like conservative Catholics say. Well, there's this ca- cafeteria style Catholicism, which like responds to the moral fads of the moment. But we, the church, are the guardians of a long tradition of revelation. So religion seems to divide itself on this on this thing. What, what do you think about that? I mean, am I right yeah, or wrong here? There is a little bit of a difficult thing, I think, with religion that there's, like, what are the major points that that are important, and then what are more minors that we can disagree on? You know, for, so some people, you know, dancing is wrong, and that's a really major thing, or drinking alcohol is wrong, or, or you know, you can go on and go and so forth. But I think, uh, I think we, we could probably stand, uh, it, it could help us if we narrow down what are the majors that, that are the non-negotiables of a religious faith and let more stuff be uh, okay to disagree about. And that humility in the face of humankind can help with that, I think, right? Because it can help you see that you have to interpret these scriptures so that it makes sense of the whole of the human world and human experience. And so that dancing thing, which gives many people joy, does scripture really forbid that? (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, the idea of of interpreting the scriptures is a huge topic that we probably don't have time to get into fully today, but a lot of people don't don't really acknowledge the lens which, with which they, they put on Scripture. Um, they, you know, a lot of people might pick out a certain passage and, and think it applies directly to today, when really there's a cultural context and, right. uh, that, that needs to be acknowledged and, and thought through in a, in a deep and serious way. Right. Scarlett is on the line from San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Scarlett. What's your comment oh, or hi. question? Hi. Um, I have a very important point to make. 
I don't know if it's so much an issue of humility as a clash between right-wing and left-wing. Just like in politics, we have the right-wing conservative, the moderate mainstream, and the left-wing liberal. The same thing in religion and just about every religion. And so within Christianity, the right-wing is called evangelical or the more extreme fundamentalists. They have their own way of interpreting the Bible very literally, what they call it, biblicism or bibliolatry, literalism, and their own tone and their own emphasis. And so they always will clash, just like in politics, the right-wingers will always clash with the left-wingers. And I think it's the same thing in politics as religion. And and uh, there used to be a, a group called Fundamentalist Anonymous. I think they still exist. I once went to them, although I never was a fundamentalist Christian, and it seemed like there, there should have been a distinction between those those fundamentalist Christians who didn't want to be a Christian at all anymore and those who wanted to remain a Christian but not be a, a right-wing Christian. So that's, that's, Carol, a, that's a really good yeah. point. You're making really good points. I'm going to give Josh a brief chance to respond, and then we have to go to a break. But thanks a lot for the call, Scarlett, because you've made lots of points. Uh, can you respond briefly to that, Joshua? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I think sometimes, uh, you know, for myself, who, who probably I would define myself as more liberal to moderate Christian, I find more common ground with other liberal to moderate religious folks or secular, secular humanists than I do with more fundamentalist Christians in who we sh t uh, share the same faith. So I think that that is a good point, and we do see those divides in, in pretty much every religion that we have. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're asking about faith and humility. Our guest is Joshua Hook from the University of North Texas. In our final segment, we'll look for some practical advice for how to humbly navigate the disputes between religious and secular citizens. Achieving our humility when Philosophy Talk continues. How would an intellectually humble believer react when God fails to come through? I'm Ken Taylor, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Deborah Satz. Our guest is Joshua Hook from the University of North Texas, and we're probing the compatibility of faith and humility. So, Josh, you know, I think I know the answer to this. I think a religion has to become more liberal and open and embracing and less dogmatic, but I don't think... Realistically, this highly sectarian and divisive approaches to religion are going away anytime soon. And despite my best, my wishes, we're not going to become one big, happy, Unitarian, Universalist, Buddhist, whatever family. Okay, given that reality, how do we actually realistically achieve a kind of mutual humility? You got any advice for us? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll offer two thoughts. One has to do with um, becoming, doing some work to become more aware of your own limitations around your religious perspective. So, for example, um, as a Christian, you know, one thing I've meditated on and thought a lot about is how could Christians have used the Bible to support slavery in the past? And uh, when you read the actual passages, it, it actually isn't that hard to, to understand that because the, the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn slavery. Uh, and so then the, the, where that takes us is, well, if we were wrong about that in the past, what are we wrong about today? Maybe, you know, we're wrong about LGBT issues. Maybe we're wrong about, uh, you know, 
ad- advising different roles for women and men in the church and in the home, things like that. So, so again, I'm worried about this because this yeah. suggests we have to be skeptical to all of our beliefs. No. And I don't think the answer, the way of making this compa- uh, everything you know, humble and compatible is to get people to be skeptical. No, it's wait, to wait, get wait. people to accept that there's reasonable pluralism about mm. these views, even though they fundamentally hold these views. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think I agree with you that this is, a, that Joshua is recommending skepticism or that, that down that path lies skepticism. I think down that path lies what I, what I, what I said, uh, that the, the, the scriptures have to be interpreted in light of all of revelation from all corners of creation. That is the yearning of these people to be free, right? And what we do to them as human beings when they're not. So we have to take that. Okay, there is this yearning, right? And that, that yearning, and then I say it's part, if I'm religious, I think that, that's, that's creation welling up from, that's a revelation from creation welling up. So what it means is you just have to have a broader view of the sources. It's a very romantic view here yeah, about but, creation but, welling up. What about we live well, in a I'm, democratic I'm ta- no, no, society no, with about, people who disagree? No, th- there's that, but I'm talking about from the religious perspective, how to understand this. Anyway, Joshua, <laughs> we should let you in well, here. <laughs> and I think not that, not that you would necessarily go through that process and be forced to change your mind about something, but just that you get in this habit of realizing that you do have limitations as a religious person and you come to the table with a specific lens. Uh, one other, one other uh, just brief point that I think might help is when we're having, uh, you know, a lot of times we talk with people who are just believe the same things as us, and I think we need to practice getting into conversations Absolutely. with people who believe good differently. Point. And I, I think think very good point. I think we're all on the same page. I'm just trying to give a religious spin to this thing that will it be acceptable to the religious. But, you know, we've got another caller on the line, Larry from San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Larry. From Berkeley, yes. Uh, my name's Larry, and I think that in honesty, which is what I can bring to conversation, as far as I can say, witness is right relationship. And let me show you that there's much agreement about that, I would suggest. And that's that the whole idea of religion as Christ is that Christ is a witness, a witness to humanity of what is beyond humanity's ability to get together about or to understand or to know in the to know, to understand that, that there's something beyond humanity. Science says much the same thing. Science is a witness to the natural world. As astronomy, the natural world is the ocean of biology, and, and so on and so on. And government, too, is a witness. We take these things to be self-evident. It's the beginning of our relationship is that we witness. What so, does your wife want, speaking as a husband? She wants a good witness. Thank you for your question. Um, So uh, Larry is pointing out that there, you know, we want a um, a perspective on the world that also recognizes that there are things beyond the world that we can't fundamentally understand. We're witnesses to the world, but also the limits of the world. Josh, is there, you have any response to that? Yeah, I mean, I I think one thing I like to think about is the fact or the my opinion, anyways, that all truth is God's truth. So I think we do see truth through the person of Jesus. We see truth through the scriptures, um, also through scientific uh, evidence and reason, and through our own experiences. So, so wait a minute. See, so again, I, I don't, Joshua. I think you and I are kind of ganging up on Deborah in a way, but I don't really. I'm not sure there's a deep disagreement in the end about what the ultimate thing should be, because 
I say, well, unless there's an openness to all voices in this pluralistic world, right, and a, and a kind of humility with respect to all voices, uh, then we're going to have a problem. Now, I think the religious person, here's where I, maybe I disagree with Deborah about this, and I'm, I, maybe you and I are on the same side. I think the religious person, the deeply religious person, wants a religious justification for that openness. And the non-religious person is going to give a secular justification for that openness. But as long as like, there's, a, there's a justification from each side, we're okay. And the justification from the li- religious side, I think, pushes you in the direction of liberal theology, right? That but not everybody creation. reads religion that way. Just I understand. Like, I agree. Okay, so. so that's going to leave out. Mm-hmm. That's our problem in the beginning. When you said, what about those true believers? They're going to be left out. That's okay. That's their problem. But why do they need to be left out if they can accept, um, you know, for political purposes that their uh, fundamental faith can't, um, you know, isn't can't dictate the behavior of other people? So, Joshua, what do you think? Yeah, I think. um, Yeah. So I I think sometimes like I don't have a a need personally for a conservative religious person to change his or her mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the difficulty comes in is when. Uh, that that religious belief is put into power and negatively impacts uh, someone else or hurts someone else. So I think that's maybe where we, we where it comes into you know how do we live in a pluralistic society um, and respect ev- everyone's beliefs. Um, so that might be the rub. So Karen from San Francisco, you're gonna be our last caller. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Karen. Hi. Um, well, it just strikes me that um, your your view of things is mainly really heavily weighted on Judeo-Christian religion. Who, who's the you that you're referring to? All of us? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I don't really, um, I'm not really one of the, the fundamentalist Christians anyway, so I can't say that. But what I mean is, uh, yeah, in general, it seems like you're emphasizing Christianity uh, to the exclusion of some things which don't even don't well purport not to have a judgmental attitude towards everything we do. Uh, However, there are many that do. But go ahead. Actually, what, what Karen. Actually, say? I explicitly mentioned Buddhism and Unitarian Universalism, which embraces all forms of things. So I, I actually think the way out is away from uh, dogmatic uh, Christianity or dogmatic anything. That's what I think is the right, way forward right. for religion. So, but Joshua, I don't know what you think. But, is there a room? Th- is there a room for a conservative? fundamentalist Christianity in a pluralistic society where people treat each other with mutual respect and humility and all that and an absence of well, dogma yeah I would hope so I think the I think the the difficulty would be if the conservative Christian or conservative religious person um, f- feels like they need to enforce a certain way of being on other people who believe differently so I think mm-hmm. that's where it gets into a little bit of a difficult situation but I think the caller made a good point and I think uh, we we do have to keep that in mind. I, I know I probably speak mostly from the Christian tradition because that's my own tradition and that's what I know the best. But we do have to keep in mind that other people may b- believe differently. Right. Again, I'm I really I I'm not hostile to religion or faith or any other. But I really do insist that if the thing I could get myself back into being religious again is if it were an all-embracing religion that says science is part of revelation, the the yearnings of the individual human is a part of revelation. You're I back mean, to this wishy-washy. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I am, because I think that's, I really believe that's so, ultimately the only so way forward. So I'm, for you know, I'm, I guess I'm, uh, and get, Josh, this goes back to your two ways, two senses of humility, is whether those two senses have to go together. So, 
to what extent, in, you know, respectful engaging with people who are different um, requires us to take an attitude towards our own beliefs where we think, well, I might be wrong about this. Like slavery, maybe I'm wrong. Um, and if, you, if those things can, can, you know, be pushed apart, maybe there's a place for the person who's an absolutist at the, who respects the diversity and opinions so of other people. So this will be your last, uh, give us your last parting shot here because <laughs> then we're at the bottom of the hour. Yeah, I think I think it's possible to separate those two. I think there is a, a correlation or an association between the two, mm-hmm. where if you are more open to questioning your own beliefs, you're more likely to mm-hmm. uh, be more respectful of other people. But I but I do think it's possible to to firmly believe and to be respectful. You just don't. I, do, I would hope for our world that right, that's the right. Case. Deborah just doesn't want to throw out the the bathwater of firm <laughs> conviction with the baby of whatever or something like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. But Joshua, on that note, I'm going to thank you for joining us. This has been a humbling but not humiliating. It's been a thrilling conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Our guest has been Joshua Hook. He's a professor of psychology at the University of North Texas. He's co-author of Cultural Humility, Engaging Diverse Identities in Therapy. So, Deborah, you got some last <laughs> thoughts, humble or otherwise, for us? So, going back to the Abraham story, you know, which I have such trouble understanding Abraham, but I think there's something that, to the idea that we have to hold two things together at the same time. We have to hold a... I'm one person among many, together with I am the center of all things, right. and my perspective is, you know, my I own it, and and it's very hard to hold those two it's things true. together. That's why. So uh, it's a little late to give you a big, to give our listeners a big lesson in the history of philosophy. But Kierkegaard versus we're talking Kierkegaard versus Hegel here, right? Because <laughs> Kierke- Hegel thought religion, faith, and reason could ultimately be reconciled, and it would reconcile <laughs> these two perspectives. And Kierkegaard came along and said, "Heck no, that ain't never going to happen." So that's a big divide. But you know what? This conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers where our motto is get this with apologies to Descartes cogito ergo blogo I think therefore I blog and you too can become a partner in our community just by visiting our website philosophytalk.org and if you have a question that wasn't addressed in today's show we'd love to hear from you send it to us at comments at philosophytalk.org and we may feature it on our blog and now to be truly humbled by the unfathomable speed of Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, President Trump, some argue, is something of a prideful man, not giving to thinking twice. Many like him for his braggadocio. Others might like him more if he would burst into tears for no reason or give somebody else credit for, well, anything, really, or apologize for claiming his Florida resort as a White House. These things will not happen. You might consider his election to be a backlash against humility. Many were angry at President Obama for what was called his apology tour in which he went around the world apologizing for America. I don't remember this tour myself, but apparently it was a thing in the minds of Trump supporters, hence the mixed feelings. On the other hand, now, social media loves to make people apologize for sexism, racism, and getting too big for their riches. In this new mediated world, though, Mr. Trump has held his own by mediating you before you mediate him. Lock her up. She's the one who did it, not me. Trump aside, we have mixed feelings about prideful displays, but we don't embrace humility as a virtue so much as we do false modesty. As a small example, England gave us Sherlock Holmes, who certainly does not hide his light under a bushel. We have Columbo, 
a rumpled, oh gosh, oh golly sort of fellow, a man who doesn't know what about nothing, and absorbs the scorn of the criminal until he springs the trap. We like the country bumpkin who comes to the city to take down the smart-talking city slickers. We like Jimmy Stewart and the anatomy of a murder, just a country lawyer who wants to go fishing, who outsmarts big city prosecutor George C. Scott. And we like our preachers to look like they have a little dirt on their souls. We love confession of sin, which is not the same thing as an apology. Sure, I did wrong, but if God can forgive me, why can't you? Aren't you a Christian? You're an atheist, aren't you? A judgmental believer in situational ethics. Leave sin to the professionals, buddy. And there's John 14 in the Bible. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Get it? That's why we have so many TV preachers with mega churches and private jets and helicopters and McMansions. Their glory reflects God's glory, but it's okay. In comparison to heaven's streets of gold, it's nothing really. It is as dust. This weird inversion of humility has led to strange situations, like one person's birth control not being covered by her insurance because another person covered doesn't believe in birth control. Who's being oppressed here? If there are rails, there was another indicator of how far off it our right has gone. Pro football player Colin Kaepernick went down on one knee instead of standing for the national anthem. It was a protest against police brutality in the United States. Attention was paid not to police brutality, but to Colin Kaepernick. It's like when you point at something for a dog and it just looks at your finger. This action became known as taking the knee. We used to call it kneeling, remember? President Trump went out of his way to call kneeling during the national anthem total disrespect. On my planet, kneeling used to be a sign of humility. You knelt before the king. You took a knee to get knighted by the queen. You kneel upon the shore to give thanks to the Lord after a dangerous voyage to a strange new land. Now, isn't playing the anthem at a sporting event itself disrespectful to the national anthem? If we're so humble, why are we struggling to our feet to give voice to a difficult-to-sing battle song at a football game in the first place? American exceptionalism includes humble bragging about how modest we are, much more than any other nation before or since. So get off your knees and get out of the way. Yes, we are hiding our light under a bushel. We're a nation of swaggering bushels with nary a light in sight. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW, local public radio, San Francisco, and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2018. Our executive producers are David Demarest and Matt Martin. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince-Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Carola Kreitmeier, Angela Johnston, and Colin Peden. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the partners in our online community of thinkers. Support for this episode comes from the Templeton Foundation. The views expressed or misexpressed on the program don't necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or any of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm Deborah Satz. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. You're not known to be a humble man, but I wonder. I think I am actually humble. I think I'm much more humble than you would understand. 